everyone. Welcome back to the Spirit of Success. I'm your host, Yara, and on today's episode, we will be discussing careers related to medicine, specifically psychiatry, and psychology. I have the pleasure of speaking with world-renowned, highly respected, and admired psychiatrist, Dr. John Woodall. Dr. Woodall is a psychiatrist with special expertise in post-traumatic stress disorder, resilience, and brain health. During his time at Harvard as a Harvard Medical School faculty member, he founded and directed the Resilient Responses to Social Crisis Working Group. Dr. Woodall has also created and implemented resilience building programs for many groups, including children and refugees, for some of the most devastating and tragic events, both domestically and internationally. Having lectured, developed, and implemented programs on resilience development and resilient responses to crisis, human rights, conflict resolution, and inter-ethnic dialogue all around the world, and having been consulted by various organizations such as the United Nations, the U.S. Department of State, and universities, Dr. Woodall's dedication to service and helping people overcome their most difficult times is remarkable and continues to leave a significant mark and impact on our world. Welcome, Dr. Woodall. How are you today? Very good. Great to, great to see you. Great to meet you. And uh, very happy to be here. Well, thank you for being on the show today. And I'm super excited for our conversation. So before we get into the details of your career, we would love to know what got you interested in medicine and what made you choose to pursue a specialty in psychiatry? Oh, boy. Uh, that's a big question. Um, I... I had no idea I wanted to go into medicine when I was in high school, uh, or even when I began college, I had no clue that I wanted to go into medicine. My problem was, is I wanted to kind of do everything. I didn't, I, I wanted to try everything. And so it was a very difficult time. I, I actually think the ages from like 16 to 26 are really tough years because you have to pick a, a career or what you want to do in college and you don't know enough about the world to even know what you would be interested in yet. So how do you pick your major? How do you decide on a career? So it was a, a difficult time for me. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want to really say no to anything. I'm kind of interested in everything. So I even took a year off after high school just to kind of figure it out a little bit. And I didn't, I didn't have any money, so I couldn't really waste it on school when I didn't know what I was doing. So, you know, I, I think if more than anything, it was a process of making a lot of mistakes <clears throat> and being willing to make a whole lot of mistakes and then keep refining my, my um, uh, goals more and more. So, I, you know, at first I thought I'd be a journalist and then I was gonna be an environmental scientist and then I was gonna be a nurse and then I was gonna be a chiropractor and I was gonna be a nutritionist and then friend of mine decided to be an osteopath and I thought, what's an osteopath? And it, it's a kind of doctor and a chiropractor together. And, uh, and I just kept thinking, well, that might be a nice thing to do. The problem with my, in my situation was I had no role models. My, I come from a family of nine and only one of my brothers had gone to college. So there was no tradition in my family of going to school or getting advanced degrees and certainly not being a doctor. So it, it, was, it was really one day after thinking, you know, maybe I'm putting a ceiling on myself. Maybe, maybe I'm limiting myself. Maybe I could be a nurse. <laughs> and I thought, well, wait a minute, maybe I could be a doctor. And I thought, no, I can't. Well, maybe I could. And so it was really just sort of taking off the lid off my own thinking to think, well, well, yeah, maybe I could. I'll give it a try. 
So it was, it was really uh, an internal growth process, really kind of taking off my own blinders. But the reason medicine is because it just seemed to me to be the, the, the field where you can really make a difference in someone's life. And that was important to me to, to be, to, to make my life count in someone else's life to make, so that it helped someone else. Now, psychiatry was the very, just like I never thought about medicine, the last branch of medicine I thought of was psychiatry because I, I knew nothing about it. I thought it was just like being nice to people and asking them about their mother. That's all I thought, I didn't know what it was. So uh, I didn't do well in it in medical school. I wouldn't, didn't really think about it much. And, but I kept coming home late from the hospital all the time when we were doing our rotations in, in the hospital. And my wife said, you know, oh, you're late. What, what, you know, what, what are you late for? And I'd say, well, I was talking to my patient. And, oh, okay. And then every night is, well, where have you been? <clears throat> well, I'm talking to my patient. And finally, one day she just said, well, why don't you go into psychiatry? And, and I was kind of insulted. I thought, psychiatry, that's not even medicine. That's some kind of voodoo or something. I don't know. She said, well, no, think about it. It's, uh, you like to talk to people. So why not do something that you're good at, build on something you're good at? And that was really good advice. So I thought, well, okay, maybe. But here was one other thing is I was, I'm also interested in international relations and how are we gonna get the world from where we are now to something better than this, right? So, I thought, well, maybe psychiatry could also give me a language into figuring out how people get along or don't get along. Not just, not just me, how, how am I feeling, but how can I get along with you? Or how, can I, how, what, how is what's going on in my head affecting the way I'm relating to you? So maybe it could be a way to help groups come together countries and nations come together. So really one of the main motivations of going into psychiatry for me was unusual. It, it had to do with my interest in peace. So uh, <clears throat> just one, and I could talk on about this forever, but just kind of the point there, I think the big lesson for me in that whole process was to A, make mistakes, make a lot of really good mistakes. The bigger mistakes, the better because you learn a ton and, and you wind up creating something that really is very suited for you. It might not be like an off the shelf kind of profession or a job, but you, can, you, might, you wind up creating something that really suits you. And so I think that happened in my career. It sort of became uh, uh, very tailored to my interests. And a lot of times I was creating fields that didn't exist yet. So being willing to kind of face the uncertainty of that and kind of go with what you really are feel driven by. And, and for me, it started with, I didn't know what I was driven by. I had to kind of figure it out. And then, but once that happens, you, you just keep following it. But the first thing is to make as many mistakes as possible and be willing to do that. Well, wonderful advice. And thank you for sharing that whole process with us. I think many youth relate to that and they can feel, even me personally, that we love a lot of things and we want to do a lot of things, especially for youth who are super, super curious and love learning. Hearing the advice to make your own career out of it is something that's so inspiring and seeing how you did that and hearing that process is really yeah. amazing. Um, and I think that also kind of completely segues into our next point. 
how have your values impacted and influenced your approach to medicine? And what unique perspectives do these bring to your practice of psychiatry? Wow, <clears throat> it's everything. Um, your, the, your program is really about service and there are all sorts of ways to think about service um, or being of service. <clears throat> and it really goes, it, there's a paradox in life that the more we are engaged with the help of another, the more we're bringing out the excellence of ourself. It's one of the great mysteries that, that if you really wanna work on building yourself up, help somebody else. And there, it, it's, if you think about it like oxygen and hydrogen, you know, uh, if you knew everything there was to know about oxygen and everything there was to know about hydrogen, uh, there's no way you could figure out uh, from what you know about hydrogen and oxygen, what water is. Water has properties that are, they call emergent properties that are more than the sum of the parts. So when you bring people together in a certain way, there are emergent properties. There are things that come out that you could never imagine. There are powers and strengths and potentially potentialities that, ex that come into being that didn't exist if you just look at the separate parts. So being engaged in service is being engaged in like bringing oxygen and hydrogen together. It brings, it creates water, it creates something bigger. And so it's one of the great things about medicine and really, really any work that, that you bring your heart to completely that uh, it, uh, you create these synergies where wonderful things happen, where the patient gets better, you get wiser. You know, the, the, the patient becomes more joyful, you are rewarded with contentment. You know, there, there's, you know, and, and so there's this give and take that happens as the result of creating a special kind of relationship. And medicine is really uniquely that, where you're given that authority by, by society to engage in that way with someone. So it's a great trust, it's a great, it's a great privilege. Um, so, and in psychiatry, I think that that process of bringing out excellence or bringing out the best of people is really what it's, what psychiatry is, right? Whether it's helping them biologically become more whole so that they can bring out their potential or helping them with their neural networking with, you know, neuromodulation or with nutrition or with guidance through therapy. There, 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 there are many ways that you can help bring a sense of wholeness to a person in relation to other people that releases their potential. So that's a, that's a kind of an abstract answer to your question. <laughs> it's a wonderful analogy. That's a great way to think about it. If there's anything else that you'd like to include about, uh, you know, what specific values or, or um, characteristics that from you personally that you put into your approach, I think that kind of makes your approach to psychiatry, you would say unique. You kind of spoke with us about how your interest in international relations and in a peace perspective to psychiatry kind of made it its own unique approach. So is there anything else you'd like to add on to that? Well, let's see if we can tie those together because uh, when, I, when I first uh, thought about psychiatry, uh, I remember I was in medical school and I went to this medical student conference in, in San Diego. And there was this wonderful man named uh, uh, Roger Fisher who was giving a talk on a book he wrote called Getting to Yes, which was about the field of conflict resolution. And this was when the field of conflict, conflict resolution was brand new, 1981. 
And he's talking about this field about how to bring people together in a peaceful way. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in the wrong field. I'm in medicine and I wanna do that. <laughs> so I went back to my medical school and I talked to the Dean and I said, can I get a PhD in conflict resolution and get an MD at the same time? And he said, sure, but what's conflict resolution? And he didn't know what it was. And I was at a big university and, and, and he said, well, if you can find a, a faculty who can be your dissertation committee, sure. There was no one in the whole university who even knew what conflict resolution was. It didn't exist. As, can, you, can, you probably can't even imagine that. But that's, it was like right at the cutting edge of that field. There was no one to teach me. So I wound up at Harvard and he became a friend of mine, actually, that man. And, uh, but then I, I used my own kind of, I developed some of my own models of conflict. But this is where the things come together. Um, the, the field comes together these, the, the global and the personal comes together in, in the, in where conflict happens or unity happens because that's where people suffer, right? It's, uh, it, and it's, it's how we approach suffering that either creates unity of groups or more conflict or where we become broken as an individual or where we grow. So the question becomes, how do we, how do we manage suffering in a way that brings unity, right? And how do we manage suffering as a person where we grow, right? And so, so that's where I was led into fields like you know, human rights issues in, in war zones or working with genocide victims to see how, what is the nature of deep suffering and how is it that we can come out of that uh, not only, well, it, a whole maybe in a new way or really bringing out the best of our humanity despite suffering. And then even then at the larger level, how can we help communities that have suffered not revert to tribes, right? Because that's what happens with, with um, group suffering. You know, that one group says, oh, you hurt me, so you're bad. And the other one says, yeah, well, you hurt me, so you're bad. And so it just sets up for the next conflict. But how do we find a way to take suffering and go, boy, you know, this is horrible. We both suffered. How do we find a way to grow together? Right? So how do you facilitate that? So that those, the, the dynamic between those two became the kind of the, the stuff of my career, how to, how to, how to navigate that, those things. So. How wonderful. That's, that's so interesting. And thinking about the connections between these things and the way that these careers and these areas of interest really do connect. If I could take a little more of your time on this, because what? your generation is pivotal. You are, you are really the fulcrum generation. You know a fulcrum that where you yeah. like a pivotal. So your generation is at the fulcrum of history, more than my generation and the generation between us. Uh, uh, you are more than any generation that has lived so far are going to be in the position of moving the world into figuring out these tensions. How do we move into unity? How do we build our resilience, our strength, our, the best of our humanity in the face of suffering? Your generation has to get really good at that. So that's why I'm so anxious to be in, involved in this conversation because I think you guys are, are, you know, the Rosa Parks and the George Washingtons and the, and the Nelson Mandela's, uh, 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 you know, in tens of the thousands of you. 
So, you know, if, if you were in a room with uh, Rosa Parks when she was 10, you know, and she was in a room full of adults, you know, who was the most important person in the room? It wasn't any of the adults, it was Rosa Parks when she was 10, right? So just because you're younger, it, it, you know, you're going, to, you're going to outshine me and everyone in my generation. So it's really important that you guys think that you, it's, you don't have to fit into a mold of um, an academic mold or, or what you think is your limited options in a profession. You, you might have to create something new, right? Uh, and, and go ahead and do it. Well, thank you for such great advice for both our, our personal lives and for our careers. With that, we're going to move on to our next question, which is one of the initiatives that you have created is called the Unity Project, which is a resilience learning system that was developed to promote resilience strengths in youth. Can you tell us about this initiative and some of the work your group does? So the Unity Project is a non-for-profit organization that I started about 20 years ago. I got involved in a terrible war that happened in a country that doesn't exist anymore called Yugoslavia. And there was a big war as though that country broke up into different units uh, where they, they fought each other. It was a terrible genocide. And there were, there were huge human rights abuses that I was engaged with in um, uh, uh, you know, documenting and also trying to find uh, relief for these people. So I was engaged also not only in the human rights issues, but in the, um, uh, in the trauma relief. So I wound up living over there, running the State Department's trauma response. But, but Yara, if you can imagine, a psychiatrist is used to dealing with one person at a time, right? But this was millions of people who were affected. So there aren't enough psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers in the world to manage just, let's say, Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia, this one country. So how do we imagine bringing psychological help to, on such a vast scale? So that, when I came back to this country, I, that's when I started thinking we have to, we have to come up with large scale models of building maybe our strengths, the, the things that unite us and bring out the best in us, not only to treat people who have been through something like this, but maybe even to prevent it from happening in the first place. So with, the, with that thinking, I thought I, I began to develop a, a, a training um, program that built uh, those skills. So it was used in New York City after 9-11. The mayor's office asked us to implement it there. But it, it's basically a couple ideas. And I'll just quickly say what the ideas are. But the, the first thing is, is remembering that when we suffer, we sort of naturally get smaller in our thinking, right? We become more protective and smaller. But the question, and, and so that might mean we become more tribal or more ethnocentric and racist or more nationalistic. But how do we go the other way? How do we, like Nelson Mandela, how do we think, oh, I was in prison for 27 years. You know, should I go out and kill all the white people or, or no, I'm gonna get bigger and how do we unite the country? So what are, the, what are the skills, the psychological and spiritual skills needed to get bigger instead of smaller? That's the first one. The second issue is how do we, uh, how do we catch our biases? How do we at least you know, how do, what signals can we give ourselves to catch bias and, and non-critical thinking that leads to 
more division and unhappiness. That's the second one. So fair-mindedness or justice in our thinking. And, the, and then the third thing is then how do we communicate? Uh, how, do we, how do we solve problems in ways and use our language in ways that don't create division, but create this unity or this, these larger groupings? So those three things, unity, justice or fair-mindedness and consultation or conflict resolution skills. So the, the program is essentially those three, building those three sets of skills. How amazing and how needed for today's society. This has not only relevance in the past or in extreme settings, as people may think, but it has impact and use in our every day-to-day -day lives when we're dealing with others. Um, so that's wonderful. And in keeping with the idea of resilience um, and training to become better to be able to help one another, beyond the dictionary definition of resilience, um, can you elaborate on what resilience means from a psychological perspective? So this is a huge question. And this is one of the things we talked about at Harvard all the time. What is resilience? If you look at it in, the, in where the word comes from, it means springing back to where you were. Like if you pulled a rubber band and let it go, it would go back to where it was. So the initial thinking of resilience is that, well, after you have a problem, after something bad happens to you, you what, what helps you spring back to where you were? But then a lot of us thought, you know, you're never really the same. You never really go back to where you were. How do you like grow like as a result of the difficulty? And so uh, a lot of the current definitions of resilience are that how do you, how do you come through a difficulty and, and be more? Well, so the thing that I added to the definition was uh, if you use that definition, there are some people who would be included in the definition that are a problem, like Adolf Hitler, for instance. You know, he wrote a book called My Struggle, Mein Kampf, which he was talking about his difficulties. And so he came through the, the First World War with all the wrong conclusions. He, he was stronger, but he was a sociopath. <laughs> and so he, and he caused, you know, a, a, a world war. So there has to be something about the way we interact with other people in an inclusive way that is involved in a definition of resilience. So, so my definition of resilience is that uh, the, the process of being able to unfold the best in you in a way that you're better able to work with expanding circles of unity, right? Mm -hmm. So that so that you're you're you don't become more ethnocentric, you become better able to engage the the world as a whole. Yeah. So and the psychological elements of that are many. Um, so it, without jumping into my course, that would take us weeks. Uh, it, but that's the basic idea. What are the skills needed to bring out the best in you that you can now interact with anyone in a way that brings out the best in everyone. Remember that that when oxygen and hydrogen, how do you create those emergent properties? Th there's, a, there's an excellent uh, 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 dialogue uh, that Abdul Baha, who was uh, one of the central figures of the Baha'i faith talks about this in uh, a series of writings called the Tablets of the Divine Plan, where he talks about uh, fellowship, fellowship, love, love, unity, unity. And he's talking to the Baha'is, but he says, 
this so that the power of the Baha'i cause may become manifest in the world. So it's like, it's saying that without unity, without like bringing oxygen and hydrogen together in that special way, there, you don't get water, right? You just have oxygen and hydrogen. So if we bring people together in a special way, something very different happens. So your generation has to be kind of uninauts instead of an astronaut. You kind of have to start, you know, you have to start like exploring how do you create those conditions for that explosion of human potential to happen? That only happens when unity happens. So I think that's a completely unexplored area of psychology and social sciences and even political science that uh, I'd like to encourage everyone listening to think about. That, that if I were your age now, I would, that's where I would be thinking. How do we explore this huge potential, human potential that can be released through unity. Yeah, and I think as our audience thinks on that topic, one thing they may come across or they may be wondering is, do you find that resilience is a skill or a trait that can be learned or is it more so something that people naturally have? I think it's a little of both, you know, but you know, we all kind of, uh, we all have something bad happen to us, right? And so the question becomes, how do you grow from it, right? So basically the question of resilience is how do you grow from the bad things that happen to you? Some people are good at certain parts of suffering, right? That you can, let's say, physically hit them and they're like, oh, okay, no problem. They move. Other people, it shatters their life, you know? Some people you can, you know, emotionally insult them and they're like, man, and other people, you've you've crippled them emotionally, right? So everybody's strong or weak in different areas, and so we wind up getting our tests or our struggles in those areas, right? And then ultimately, we become strong in the broken places. Uh, so I guess my answer is is that we all learn a, a particular flavor of resilience. There's a there's a beautiful Japanese art form called kintsukorai where they take these beautiful, they, first the, the, a potter will make a beautiful porcelain bowl and, and they'll decorate it and everything, it'll be perfect. And then they break it on purpose. And then what they do is they take gold or silver lacquer and they put it back together again with the silver or gold lacquer holding it together. And they say it's more beautiful with the gold or silver lacquer holding the pieces together. It's more beautiful for having been broken. And so humans are like that, you know, where we wind up being more beautiful in the areas that we were, where we were weak. I used to stutter. I used to have a terrible stutter. And then people started asking me to give public talks and I was terrified. <laughs> I was just terrified. And I would just, I would just stop speaking. I go, huh, and no, nothing would come out, you know, but then I've done it so many thousands of times that I, you know, now I'm asked to talk, right? And isn't that ironic? So we get good in, we get good at the things that scare us. From that, what are three key factors that help people develop this resilience and overcome trauma? I know you discussed that it's, it's different for everybody as, you know, it depends on what the trauma is, what type of resilience you mentioned they may naturally have or be more inclined to. Um, but do you also see that these factors vary between children and adults? And if so, how? These are huge questions. These are huge questions um, and complicated questions, but let's see if I can break it down. 
there are physiological responses to trauma that frequently need professional help. Then we're talking about real trauma, where someone is in, a, in the experience of terror, where, where they feel that their life is in, uh, endangered in some way. Um, it's it's uh, lesser so with lesser kinds of traumas. But the first thing is the physical response to it, which you know you've heard of the fight or flight response, where um, where uh, it's like a fire alarm in our body that goes off. And remember, like in school, when the fire alarm goes off, you know, you might be in math class or in gym, but as soon as the fire alarm goes off, you got to put the pen down, put the ball down, everybody in single file, you walk out. It takes, the fire alarm is more important than anything. Same thing in our body when we are confronted by a lion or we step out in the street and, and there's a car coming at us. Just like that, it our body goes into the fight or flight response where we're flooded with adrenaline, which is like the fire alarm in our body. And it takes over everything. It takes over our body, makes our heart beat fast so that we can fight the, the, the lion, right? Or jump away from it, right? Or fight or flight. So our body gets taken over by the adrenaline or norepinephrine, right? So that's the first thing. The second is our emotions get taken over because we have to, our, our emotions act like a lens that make us stay focused on the, what the threat is. And the best emotions to help you either fight or flee, you know, when there's something bad happening are anger and fear, right? So the, the way you know you're kind of caught up in the fight or flight response is that your body is more tense, like you're ready to fight or run and you're more prone to be angry or fearful, right? And then the third thing is that uh, we fall into kind of perceiving the world around us as looking threatening or scary, right? So everything, you know, because our, our emotions are like lenses, like, you know, like, and everything we see through that lens just amplifies the emotion we are already feeling. Like if you're laughing hysterically with your friends, you know, and then every stupid thing they say is hilarious, right? And then an hour later when you're not laughing, it's like, that was dumb. What were we laughing at, right? Or if you're in love with someone like every, oh my God, they picked up their phone. No one has ever picked up a phone like that. That's amazing, right? But then like after a while, you're like, hey, it's just a phone. Or if you're angry at someone, everything they say just makes you angry, right? More angry. And then an hour later, you're like, well, wait a minute. They didn't mean that. I just got that all wrong. So our emotions become a lens that we view the world through that just amplifies that emotion. So the, these are areas that we work with in trauma relief, helping the body calm down so that that adrenaline lets go of the control of the body, helping with emotional regulation so that you have more emotional bandwidth than just anger and fear, so that you can perceive the world as it really is and not as a scary place or a place that makes you angry all the time. So there's a variety of ways to deal with that. So some of the some of the techniques of building resilience are body quieting techniques, emotional regulation techniques, perceptual techniques that help you see things as they really are. And to me, they also involve those three areas we talked about. How do I use those skills to see unity where maybe the fight or flight response would make me see somebody who's scary or someone who I, I should see as an enemy? How do I get out of that lower nature, that animal response from my brainstem, let's say, and use the higher part of my brain, my cortex, to see ways to unite or to, to build the best of, uh, or to bring out the best in each other. So that's what the skills of unity, fair-mindedness, and uh, 
consultation or creative problem solving come in. Wonderful. And we'll be talking a little bit more about those techniques specifically or other techniques that you'd like to be sharing with us a little bit later in the show. So stay tuned. But to move on to our next question, um, can you comment on the benefits of service mindedness on the individual that performs those services, as well as the impact of combining service mindedness and one's career? How does this impact change as the person develops and matures from youth to adulthood? I think it's critical. I think it's everything. Uh, uh, I think we've mentioned before uh, something like this, that <clears throat> when, when we're engaged with another person in the right way, it not only may help the other person, but it mutually brings out the best in each other. But that could be true in a business relationship, or if you're a janitor, or a cook, or a, or a gardener, or a, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or, or a teacher. It, it doesn't make a difference what the work is, as long as it has that sense of bringing out the excellence of whatever it is you're doing. Um, it, 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 so service-mindedness is with the, the focus of being of benefit to something bigger than yourself. That motivation automatically brings out the best in everybody. So, so for instance, if, if I comment on your intelligence, if I say, oh, you know, the way you ask that question is very insightful, right? It's very sensitive and insightful. Well, I can't see your sensitivity and insight unless I have a little, at least a little bit of insight and sensitivity. So my focusing on your sensitivity and insight is bringing out my sensitivity and insight. You see, that's a simple way to think about it. So service winds up being, it's a kind of a mystery of service is that it's, you think it's for the other person, but it winds up really being for you too, right? So also the world becomes better, right? The, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> the tendency of people to get smaller and more tribal that happens mostly because we're not helping each other and everybody feels alone and, and oppressed. Right? But if we're serving each other, it makes it easier to go this way, right? And, be, and to go larger in our thinking and to feel that we can trust each other to build a larger unity, to help each other. So the, you see how these things are connected, our inner life and, and, our, and, the, and the outer world. Um, so I, I think a service orientation is not just a pious thing, or it's not just a nice thing to do, uh, or a moral thing to do, and it is, it's all of those things. But it winds up being uh, the, the only way to really release the, the most human potential. You know, if you want to see that explosion of creativity happen, be engaged in service. In keeping with that mindset, serving is an inherent part of medicine, as we've talked about, and as have you shared throughout your own career, um, but what values and characteristics in a physician do you believe are key in enhancing the impact of the service? There are many. It's a great privilege to be a physician. Uh, and if I could just speak a, a little bit about the process of becoming a physician uh, in particular, as opposed to a nurse, uh, there's, there are equally uh, enriching and valuable comments that could be made about nursing or other healthcare pro uh, professions. But for a physician, the, the rigor of getting to, through, and out of medical training and then continuing your education is an enormously valuable mental discipline. 
that helps you. Uh, remember that second issue? The one was learning unity. The second was eliminating bias. Uh, to, to learn how to separate something that's important from something that's not important, something that's true for, with, versus something that you hope might be true, uh, something that is, uh, you know, how to weigh proportions and possibilities. So medical training, you're using that, those skills constantly. So it helps refine your ability to be in a position to um, create unity to uh, help uh, people fairly and to solve problems creatively. So it, it, it provides you with extraordinary cognitive skills that you're using constantly uh, in the service of other people. So that by itself makes it uh, tremendously valuable. And I, one thing I would, I would caution for um, uh, younger viewers of this, is that I, I talk to young people all the time about their futures. And, you know, they'll say, oh, you know, I really am thinking about something in healthcare. And, and it's over the last 20 years, the number of people who say they want to go into medicine is fewer and fewer. And it's not because they're not smart or want to help people. It's because they don't want to stay in school. And because they're tired of school. And I get that. Um, and it might be that our education system has failed you a lot because it's boring. And, but I think it's also an impatience, right? You want to get, let, let's get change in the world faster. And it's the difference between, let's say, taking off in a, in a, in a plane that goes up like this and you know, gets off the ground quickly, you know, a small light plane, but it doesn't get any higher than that versus like a, you know, I don't know, a, another kind of jet, let's say, that takes a whole lot longer to get off the ground, but it goes here you know, five years down the line. The other one's already up there, but it's never higher than this. So I would encourage you to, to really think about the long game, that having the, the best tools and the, mo the, the, you know, the best tools you can possibly have 20 years from now, and you will be older, you, you will reach 20 years from now, right? So you want that life you're having 20 years from now to be as rich and full as possible. So if you have an inkling of, of uh, going into medicine, don't close the door on that idea too soon, especially if you're a woman or a person of color. There, it, it's a huge topic. And, and I, I can think of several lectures I've given to medical schools about this, but because of our time. Uh, uh, one of the things, here, here's something that I'll tell you quickly that, that you'll know now that medical students need to learn in their four years of medical school, but I'll tell you it now. Um, there's a sense that every, I, this is a lecture I used to give to first year medical students uh, uh, back years ago. Um, everybody in medical school feels like they're an imposter. That, you know, they, they all feel like, oh my God, I don't belong here. I mean, there was that huge chemistry text that I was supposed to learn. And I, I feel like I only learned about 10% of it or 20% of it and so much of it I don't know. And now I'm in medical school and I got all this anatomy and physiology and chemistry and all the, and uh, I just don't feel like I'm learning all of it. So they all feel a little bit like they're behind the eight ball. That, that, and so what happens is, is there's, a, there's a sense of a bit of a, I'm an imposter or I don't really know that I can do this or maybe I'm not as good as everybody else. When they, when they then get to the units to, to the, where they're doing their 
you know, internships and things, working with patients. Now they really feel inadequate because there's students who, and interns and residents who are more experienced than them who are way more competent than they are. And so you just feel completely useless. So now, remember when we talked about uh, identities when they're under stress or, or traumatized, they can get smaller or bigger? It happens to medical students. So now with that kind of pressure, you might feel that it's humiliating and overwhelming. And so you might get smaller in your thinking. And then if you get smaller in your thinking, you might get more defensive, more fight or flight, where you're like angrier at people. So let's say when your patient comes in and, they're, and they have a problem you can't figure out, instead of being more compassionate, getting bigger and, and trying harder to help them, you get smaller and angry at your patient or dismissive and say, well, here, just take this and go. So as a doctor, you've got a master getting bigger, right? That if you're challenged, you find colleagues to work with, you find help, you, uh, you, you work with your patients. You, but first you try to have your heart and mind get bigger and not smaller. So that's kind of an example of what we were talking about with resilience and even international relations, how it relates in a doctor's work. And that's why they call it the art of medicine and the practice of medicine, because it's the art of your own perfection. So the degree to which you can master that ability is the degree to which you become not only a better person, but certainly a better doctor. Yes, well, for sure. And I hope that our viewers take that and are able to apply it to whatever career it is that they're looking for, especially those in medicine, because mm -hmm. as we've talked about, and as you've mentioned, these are applicable to any career that you may choose, or that you may look into. What does success mean to you? And how has your definition of success evolved throughout your life and career? So there's levels of success, right? So being at Harvard is a type of success. Being a physician is a type of success. Um, ultimately, it winds up being what I was just talking about. Uh, do, do you maintain your humanity and get bigger? when uh, you're under stress or do you get smaller, right? So success winds up being about your heart and about um, uh, becoming more humble and wise and compassionate in life struggles. So if you can bring those qualities of humility and uh, uh, compassion and wisdom and diligence you know, and staying with it, right? to whatever it is you do, you're a success, right? And then the other things happen, you know, you, you, you know, if you, if you get a position and all those things, those are wonderful, but they're, they're also traps. Uh, one of the things that I learned quickly was that there are people who are only interested in the external success, being a full professor, getting the grant, all those things. And some of them would do anything to step on someone else to get those things. Were they successful? Well, yeah, in some ways, but do I want them, do I want to hang around with them? No, not particularly. <laughs> so, uh, so, so ultimately this, our success really is um, how we uh, find a way to feel more alive, even in the face of life struggles. And there is something we didn't talk about that's important. It really, and this is another thing that the psychiatrists of the future really need to work on, is what is the force that 
prevents us from shrinking in our identity like we just talked about? Well, uh, re I referred to Abdu'l-Bahá before. He talks about that. He says there's only one force that does that, and that's love. You need to become experts at what is this thing, love, you know? And how does it allow us to go this way, right? So instead of that way. And in the middle of our greatest crises, how do we use that as a way to become more enkindled with love as opposed to have it damp dampen us and put us out? These are big mysteries and, and they really require answers uh, for our world to become healed. So I think they are legitimate areas for uh, scientific investigation, clinical investigation for the, your generation of psychiatrists. Those are all very big things that we all have to think about. And hopefully as we continue down the line and as we continue gaining insight and advice um, from professionals as yourself, and we start developing our own path and we start incorporating you know, different interests in different areas, hopefully one day we will see that answered. And I think we slowly, slowly start, will as we start all becoming more service oriented and all more unity minded and from a more genuine place. So it's, it's exciting to see, but it's also something that we're all gonna have to work towards. Along these lines, what are some of the values and approaches that you feel are important in approaching some of the common mental health needs for youth today? Of youth? Yes. What, probably the thing that I see most often in my practice is uh, are a couple of things that are related to each other. One is a lot of anxiety uh, about the world and how to get things moving. And there's so much confusion with school and you know how do you do it remotely and and then staying motivated. Like uh, and there's so many influences on motivation. Uh, it's all right. There's a lot to talk about here. Uh, uh, but let, let's just start with those two things, anxiety and motivation. Let's just start with those. Um, there's a lot of reasons people can be anxious. Uh, the brain doesn't like to be attacked by tigers or be almost hit by, we don't like like physical threats, but we also don't like confusion, right? The brain doesn't do well with confusion and it treats confusion the same way we would treat being attacked by a lion, right? We get, we get anxious about things that are confusing, just like we might get anxious about a car coming at us or a lion attacking us. So with so much confusion in the world right now, it automatically raises everybody's anxiety level because we're all in kind of a fight or flight mode, just by all the craziness of COVID, for instance. But then if you add to that, when you're 16 to 26, trying to figure out school, trying trying to figure out the college and the courses and career, that is an awful lot of uncertainty. And you have to make decisions on a timeline that seems really artificial. So there's, there's, ten, there's anxiety that goes with that. Now, let's talk a little bit about procrastination and things. Um, I'm gonna use my hands to talk a little bit here. So I wanna talk about four things. The first thing is a goal. Like let's say it's the goal of, I don't know, doing your homework or, or the goal of taking out the garbage or, or, or what college am I gonna to go to? Or, you know, or I gotta complete this class. There's a goal that we have. Now to reach that goal, I have to have some kind of capacity, some kind of ability, some kind of skill to reach the goal, right? So if I don't feel I have that capacity, the goal feels out of reach, right? And so then I'm not motivated because what connects a goal with my sense of capacity is motivation, 
Remember when we talked about putting water or oxygen and hydrogen together and water happens? That's like, that's like motivation. Hydrogen is like the goal and oxygen is like my abilities. And what happens when you put them together the right way is the water of motivation, right? Right. So, so motivation happens when I think I can accomplish that goal. But if I don't think I can do it because it's too out of reach, I'm not motivated. Or maybe, and I might not even be interested in it if the goal seems too out of reach. But if it's a goal I really want, but I don't think I can do it, I'm not motivated, but I might be left with the anxiety about oh, if I only could do it, right? Mm -hmm. So some anxiety has to do with not feeling that you have the ability to reach your goal. Right? So one of the key things about developing resilience and helping yourself with anxiety and motivation is to get a better sense of what your abilities are, get a better sense of what your capacity is. And this is where we help each other. And one of the things I do in my courses on resilience and things is I help people, uh, parents with their kids, friends with each other, you know, teachers and students, uh, you know, therapists and their patients, learn how to identify the strengths in each other. For instance, I can see strengths in you. I mentioned two of them already. You're very intelligent and insightful, right? You're also articulate and you're, uh, you're, you're motivated and you're visionary and that you have this sense of, of wanting to help your peers uh, you know, become motivated to service. So there's a bunch of skills I see in you, right? And they're hugely valuable skills because the world really needs our youth right now. You guys are the fulcrum generation and you get that already. So you're visionary and motivated. You, you, ah, you have a goal, right? To, to mobilize your generation. You feel you've got the capacity to do it. You're motivated and you're creating the fourth thing, which are relationships, right? You've you contacted me, we've established a relationship. You're having a relationship with all the people watching. So that's the fourth one. So it's goals, a sense of capacity connected by motivation, right? That's like the water that just happens when these two things are lined up right. And it all happens in the context of relationships, right? So our striving for goals either strengthens our relationships or weakens them. So the trick is too, is how do we use our relationships in a way that we are nurturing the relationships and we feel like we're being nurtured back, right? So the best way to do that the, the easiest first step is what I just did with you. I, no, I noticed all these wonderful capacities you have. And then I told you how, how they're valuable. Did you notice that? I, so once you do that, that brings, well, let me ask you, what, how did that feel when I asked you those questions? It felt good and thank you. <laughs> see, now, now you'll probably feel more motivated to keep doing this, right? Yeah, you see that because your sense of capacity, you know, you maybe you hadn't even thought about it, but your sense of capacity went up and now that goal felt even easier to reach, right? So motivation felt, felt even easier. So one of the ways to build motivation, decrease anxiety and uh, a decrease procrastination is to help someone with their sense of their capacities, right? And, and we can do that with each other and our families and with our friends by that simple thing. Wow, you've got this, this, and this quality. You just showed me those right now. And then the second thing is, and this is why it's valuable, right? So if it's your sister, you say, wow, you've got these great qualities and it's valuable because you make the, the family better when you're like that. And it's easier to, you know, everybody's more relaxed when you're, you have all these great qualities and we're proud of you. 
So, so building up a sense of confidence in your competence, right, uh, is the first important step in building resilience because the goals then seem more easier, more easy, easily reached, and motivation happens more easily, and then it makes our relationships more more functional. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing all of that. First off, thank you for all your kind words towards me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, but I think that that emphasizes how important it is, especially like you mentioned, in today's society, where we may feel isolated, we may feel by ourselves. In reality, that reaching out to somebody, giving them that motivation, giving them that encouragement, checking in on our friends and our family members to see how they're doing, really can help us have a boost in energy, have a boost in momentum, and get us to want to continue doing things. Because I, I like to think of it, just because we're isolated doesn't mean that we can't be together. But I think we have to re-envision what that meaning of togetherness is. So along with that technique, can you please share with us some more techniques and practices that we can all apply toward improving and caring for our mental health? So let's build on that one that we just mentioned. Um, uh, and I'm going to talk about something that is kind of a headwind or something that would make it harder to do that. And it's, it's actually social media. Uh, as wonderful as social media is, you know what it's designed for. It's designed to keep you addicted and, and paying attention so that they can put a million ads in front of your face, right? You guys know about the algorithms and all that stuff. And so not only is it a mostly a huge waste of time, but it's an addiction. And, and, uh, and it's all, it does, it's not about bringing out the best in you. It's about keeping you focused on the screen so that they can put ads in front of you and make a lot of money. So it's at least be aware of it. And the reason is, is because we're all anxious right now for all the reasons we just talked about, we want to decrease our sense of anxiety. And so we go on social media because it's kind of like opium. <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it makes us feel like maybe we're a little less anxious, but it really isn't bringing out anything good in us. And in fact, a lot of times we, when we put the phone down, we feel nervous for a while. Here's one of the dilemmas of social media. Remember the brain doesn't like confusion? The next time you pick up a phone and are looking at some, you know, app, you know, a hundred ads will fly by in a minute or so. And you might not consciously even register it, but your brain, your unconscious is noticing a hundred different things you're supposed to pay attention to. And at a micro scale, you've got to say no, no or yes, uh, you know, 10 times a second, right? And so it's exhausting. Right, and and your brain experiences all that decision making as uh, confusion. And remember how the brain responds to confusion makes you more anxious. Right? But the, the the app is designed to keep your attention, to keep you more anxious, so that because maybe this ad or maybe that rabbit hole, maybe that app will help me feel less anxious, or this TikTok or that. Right. What's actually happened is is you've been drained of all your attention. <laughs> right. And, and now you've got to, now you're even farther behind with your schoolwork or whatever, which makes you more anxious. So being a little bit more aware of the of the how we're being enslaved by social media. I'm really guilty of that, too. So I'm not saying it because I have mastered it. It's, it's, it's an issue. Right. Um, so a, another technique, I, I'm going to call it uh, an, a, an invitation to intimacy. And you referred to it, Yara, just a second ago. Um, about relationships. 
remember our, the tendency is to want to go this way when we're stressed to become more isolated or to become and in our isolation to become more afraid or more angry you know more resentful of people who upset us or more afraid of reaching out because we feel offended in some way getting smaller right so plant a little flag in your thinking that says notice when you're doing that getting smaller right and more isolated that, that, that's how you know you just say to yourself that man i'm I'm just going to be alone for the rest of my life. When you say that kind of stuff to yourself, whoop, yellow flag. And that's when you need to say, I need to connect to somebody, right? I need, it's an invitation to intimacy. I need to go the other way because if I let this go, I'm just going to keep getting smaller and smaller and more and more desperate and lonely, right? So you got to make a conscious decision at some point. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing those techniques with us. And I think those are all things that we're going to be trying to incorporate more into our lives. Nearing towards the end of our show, almost. Um, what advice do you have for youth who want to pursue a career in medicine, psychology, or medical students who are in the process of choosing a specialty? The, let's start with those who are thinking about healthcare and medicine. I think we, we, we talked about this a little bit before. A couple things. One is, remember I told you about how nobody in my family went to college and we didn't have any money and I'm like, how the heck is this ever going to, I had no idea. Once I decided to go to medical school, I had no idea how I could actually do it, right? So there's something about the universe that uh, paths open up when you are resolute, when you make a decision uh, and when you're like um, authentic about it and really move forward with it. So A is don't put a, a limit on your own thinking. If you want to do it, don't say, well, I can't because they're out of money or just go for it, right? And then, and the second thing then is um, you might have to pay a price, right? And the price might be time right? and it might be confusion and it might be failure. So that's the next one. Be willing to make a lot of mistakes and be willing to fail a lot, right? I took the MCAT three times, right? That's the medical student entrance exam. I took it three times, it took me three years to get into medical school. I went up at Harvard, so I did okay, right? So uh, keep trying, right? Make plenty of mistakes and don't be afraid of the mistakes. And the fourth is just keep going. Keep, don't just keep moving, keep, you know, and, and you know, I worked in a post office for a while, I, I delivered, I delivered packages. I, you know, I, I worked in a gas station, and then I wound up in medical school. <laughs> I, you know, so it's it, there's no direct, there's no path. Everybody makes their own path, and don't be afraid. It doesn't mean that you're lost or forlorn or a failure if your path doesn't look like the one on the entrance, uh, on the brochure for the medical school. There's no path. Uh, everybody does it differently. What counts is that you're fire. Keep your fire going, right? And be around people who keep your fire lit, right? Don't, you know, don't be around people who put your fire out. Um, so there's that. Uh, in medical school, listen to your mistakes and listen to your heart. Uh, my audience, uh, we hope that, you know, you apply that and that helps you in your path, whether it's choosing a career and deciding whether you want to go into medicine or psychology or psychiatry, or if you're a medical student who's wondering what specialty do I do now? Um, so before our episode ends, do you have any additional words of encouragement or advice you would like to share with our audience? Uh, just to repeat that, um, 
I really do think your generation is the fulcrum generation, maybe in all of history. Uh, I think you will see greater challenges than the world has ever seen, it's possible. And it's also very possible that you will create a new world that's never been seen before, something completely new. So be willing to make those mistakes, be willing to go bigger, be willing to do something bold that's never been done before. And uh, if, if the pattern doesn't exist, make it, create it, right? Uh, healthcare and medicine is a noble, wonderful field. If it's combined with a true sense of service, with that love in you that's bringing out the best in you and others, it, it's a, it's a uh, I think, an unmatched uh, path to personal growth where you can also be of tremendous service to others. So I would encourage you to hang in there. How amazing. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Woodall, for your vast insight and advice today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And Dr. Woodall's multifaceted and extensive contributions to the world of psychiatry and crisis intervention and management are numerous. And I could not adequately summarize all of them in the span of this interview, but I highly encourage you all to learn more about him and read about his work, as well as talk with him on his Facebook at John Woodall MD. Dr. Woodall has also been working on a lot of upcoming projects, including offering courses called My Resilient Team. Would you like to share more about this class with us? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's called My Resilient Teen, and it's for parents to help their teen become a world changer or, and to become resilient. And it's really my effort to what you're doing also, Yara, you're trying to get your generation ready for what's coming. I'm trying to do whatever little I can to help that process too. So uh, on Facebook, there's a page, My Resilient Teen. If you'd like to check out John Woodall ND for my clinical page or uh, My Resilient Teen for the resilience work, that'd be great. Wonderful. So as Dr. Woodall said, if you'd like to register for the course or learn more about these courses, whether you're a parent or a youth, please visit MyResilientTeen.com. And if you would like to join the Facebook group, it is titled My Resilient Teen. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Woodall. And as always, thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and like the podcast on its various platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, and Google Podcasts to be notified each time a new episode is posted. If you want to get the latest updates about the show, announcements, and submit questions that you would like me to consider to talk about on the show, Follow us on Instagram at spiritof.success and Facebook at spiritof.success9. Until next time, I'm your host, Yara, and don't forget to continue challenging yourself and working to make your spirit soar to new heights. Bye!